welcome also to everyone at home listening via the ENO podcast. My name is Alexandra Coughlin. I'm a music critic and journalist, and I'll be chairing this Q&A panel discussion. In just a minute, I'll bring out the other panelists. But beforehand, I've been asked to give you just a very quick introduction to Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld. January 1857, and all of fashionable France are flocking to Paris for the premiere of Verdi's blood-soaked tragedy, Il Trovatore. Just a year later, those very same fashionable crowds are flocking to quite a different show, Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld. course, it's not entirely fair of me to compare a tragedy and a comedy. France has a long history of operatic comedies, but the difference between the opéra comique, those sophisticated, elegant comedies, and the um, gloves-off, roll-your-stockings-down opéra bouffe that op Offenbach was introducing at this point is like night and day. It's perhaps as great as the difference between tragedy and comedy itself. So what was it about this ragamuffin, upstart form of comic opera which so captured fashionable France at this point? Well, in order to understand that, we need to have a look at the context. 19th century France was a nation in flux. From 1789 and the start of the French Revolution, the country had swung from republic to empire and back again several times. There was no respite, there was no peace, there was no stability. Louis Napoleon in 1851, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, was one in a long series of men who seized the opportunity of this chaos to stamp their mark and to assert their power within France. His first act was to uh, make himself elected president for 10 years. Um, he had himself elected emperor, effectively destroying all of his opponents, ensuring his power for life. Now we get some sense of the, the flavour, the character of this new regime. His official, the Duke of Persigny, who wrote, we shall rule this country with a purse in one hand and a whip in the other. Now, what exactly would that look like? Well, we get some sense from this wonderful portrait of Louis Napoleon. You know, the sense of military power, of stability, of wealth. You know, this is a man who's not to be trifled with, a man you can trust. And um, this was a really rare period of peace at home. For the first time in many years, France was only fighting on foreign soil. So there was at least the illusion of peace and prosperity. It was a time to regroup, to rebuild, both figuratively and literally. So this is the era in which Paris becomes the city we all know and love. When Baron Haussmann went into the cobbled medieval streets in the dark corners of Paris where people could foment revolution and dissent and swept them away, he opened up the boulevards and kind of let the light into Paris. But if he was opening up the streets, it was about the only thing he was opening up. It was during this period that censorship of the press reached a new height. Louis Napoleon was very keen for the people to hear only what he wanted them to hear. And of course, then there was the police, whose powers of violence were greater than ever before. So that was the whip, which was good enough for the common people. But the aristocracy needed a slightly different approach, and that's where the purse came in. Napoleon established his court in Paris as the centre of cultural life. If you weren't there, you were nobody. But in order to draw his aristocrats in, to keep them under his eye, to ensure that he knew exactly what was going on and who was gossiping with whom, he had to offer them some inducements. Of course, there were feasts, there were entertainments, there were parties, and there was operetta, the latest and most fashionable of cultural forms. 
Now, there's a wonderful description here from Richard Traubner from 1983 about operetta. He writes, Flowing champagne, ceaseless waltzing, risque couplets, uniforms and glittering ball gowns, romancing and dancing, gaiety and light-heartedness, sentiment and schmaltz. Now, the art form he describes there is a bit like a champagne bubble. It's beautiful, it's glittering, but it's very fragile and ultimately perhaps quite empty. I'd be very interested to hear at the end of tonight's talk and tonight's performance whether you still think operetta is such an empty form. But whatever you do think of it, there is no doubting the fact that the one king of operetta is Offenbach. Later in his career, he was described by Rossini as the Mozart of the Champs-Élysées. You know, melodies just flowed out of him with the same ease as they did from Mozart. But the man we meet in 1858 is not quite there yet. He's just on the cusp of stardom. He'd arrived in Paris as a cellist, as a conductor, always with ambitions to compose, but was never allowed by the Opéra Comique to fulfil those ambitions. Not dismayed, he hired himself a theatre, the Théâtre des Bouffes Parisiens, and in 1858, he set out to stage his first full-length two-act opera, Orpheus in the Underworld. Now, this opera takes a slightly different approach to the classical myth. I've already hinted that opera bouffe is a much rougher, tougher form of operetta. Its elbows are sharper, its tongue is quicker, it's a bit more obviously farcical than opera comique. And so, by extension, his treatment of the classical myth does the same. Our gods are not the kind of the revered um, classical figures of Corneille and Racine. These are gods as small children who squabble over their toys, who are interested in wine and women and really not a lot else. You can imagine that the reaction from the very conservative Parisian press was quite extreme. They have killed off respect, shouted one newspaper. Classical Olympia has been thrown into disarray and the authors have demolished the old schoolroom material of heroics and tragedy, said another. A third simply wrote, a profanation. Now, it doesn't feel like skipping too quickly to the back page to say that within just a few months, Offenbach's opera very much swayed opinion and became the toast of the town. So much so that just two years later, Louis Napoleon himself, the object of all this satirical ridicule, was so fascinated by the operetta that everyone was talking about that he ordered a command performance just for himself. Afterwards, he wrote Offenbach a thank you letter. I shall never forget the dazzling evening Orphée aux Enfers enabled me to spend at the theatre. Now, rather than talk to you about the operetta myself, I now bring out the panellists so that they can give you a more vivid sense of it. So please join me in welcoming Associate Director Matthew Monaghan and Conductor Valentina Peleggi. I should say also that we may be joined later tonight by Willard White as well. He's currently in a dialogue call, but we hope very much that he'll be joining us a little bit later on. So we leave a seat for him. Matthew, I've already hinted that this particular treatment of the Orpheus myth is not by any means a classic or classical treatment. What is Offenbach's take on it? Um, well, I think the operetta is a complete subversion, really, of the, the classical myth. Um, I think the classical myth really is uh, a story about these kind of malevolent gods who decide to... Um, wreak vengeance on Orpheus and destroy him and um, really it's about his heroic struggle in the face of that. Um, I also think the classical myth offers a sort of moral message perhaps which is about obedience and the central idea, the narrative at the end when Orpheus looks back at Eurydice and doesn't trust that she's following him um, and then he's punished for that is about um, obeying the rules that have been set out for you and sort of um, 
sort of embodying values of patience, I guess, um, chastity, um, sort of not um, succumbing to the demands of the flesh. Um, and in a, in a sense, it's quite an austere tale. And Offenbach completely and utterly rips that apart, I would say, um, in that in narrative terms, Orpheus and Eurydice don't want to be together. So she wants to go down to hell and have a jolly good time. And Orpheus doesn't want to follow her down to hell. Um, also, at the end, I think it's implied, really, that he looks back on purpose, and that you know hell is a brilliant place to be, and they want to stay there. Uh, so really, the the... Offenbach teaches us to be disobedient as opposed to obedient. I guess that would be the, 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 the very radical change in the myth. Offenbach also invents a character. So he adds in the character of public opinion, who is, um, who is that um, person who always used to complain about the BBC, Mary Waterhouse, I think, yes? Mary Whitehouse, yes. Um, in a way, public opinion's a bit like her, sort of teaching people what to do. Um, and in, in a previous production here, she was kind of portrayed as Maggie Thatcher. Um, uh, and public opinion forces Orpheus to go down into uh, hell and uh, kind of gets on his nerves and our nerves as well. Um, the piece is also a satire of the ruling classes, which is something you were just talking about. It it pokes fun at the nobility and suggests they're not as well behaved as we like to think that they are. Um, and also pokes fun as at sort of 19th century French bourgeoisie, I would say as well. That's kind of it. So it's quite different to the other mostly tragic Orpheuses we're getting this season at ENO. Um, Designer Lizzie Clacken is working across all four. Um, how far is ENO and are you approaching this as one panel in the sort of quartet of shows? And how far is this very much a standalone piece? All four directors approached the works very, very differently. So, I, in a sense, it's a standalone. Um, there were some initial meetings at the beginning of the design process where the directors all met each other and talked about various set items they could share, um, which they do. Um, and Lizzie's job was somehow to bring together all four operas, opera productions, um, with unifying set elements. And she is the sort of link artist between all four. She's really the lead artist on all four productions in a way. Um, and I think broadly speaking, um, our production is the kind of vivid, colorful, anarchic one. Um, the Mask of Orpheus is the, the mad one. <laughs> the Wayne McGregor, the Gluck, is the one that's the kind of the poetic one about grief. And then the, the Glass, the Orphe, is kind of the intellectual, more cerebral um, production. Um, so yes, she, what, what's interesting as well, of course, is that what you get is not only four different versions of the piece, four different composers takes, but also four different directors approaches to those pieces as well. So it's kind of like um, you're locked in this, if you see all four, in sort of endless interpretations of the Orpheus myth, which is kind of exciting. But what, what their defining characteristic is contrast, really, I would say. And Valentino, we heard earlier from Rossini that he described uh, Offenbach as the Mozart of the Champs-Élysées, um, which is quite a compliment coming from Rossini. Can you give us more of an idea of, of what Offenbach's sound is? Why was he so successful where others failed in Paris at this time? Well, first, good afternoon. <laughs> it's nice to have you here. Um, yes, first, we have, to, we have to acknowledge that 
although Paris was a big city, the musical environment was quite small, so everybody knew each other. And you can be a really good friend or really not a good friend. In this case, Rossini and Offenbach, they knew each other very well, and they admired themselves very much. So this, is, this was a very good, great compliment from him. Um, I have to say, why? Why the Mozart one? Um, Offenbach style, music style, um, I think he, it has two um, really powerful things. One is, the, is his approach to colors. For example, he uses in the orchestration uh, techniques that were quite strong at the moment. For example, you will hear the ponticello, quite a lot, so this sound like, you know, distortion sign, sound, which is connected also to a distortion way and the satiric way to look at things. Uh, and you will hear also the hummings, the choir will be humming, and you'll be in, in act one, scene two, when the chorus appears, they'll be I mean, it was quite a big thing, it, never, it was never used before, the choir humming. Or for example, uh, the use of the piccolo in the orchestra just to shadow Eurydice's uh, gigglings, like, hmm, and the Eurotamina was like, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it's quite nice, and these things, imaginative. On the other side, um, we have to think that the power in, in his music is not, it's a, it's a very refined kind of music, but it's very simple. I mean, I would say, and it is, it is very simple. So its power is not in the complexity, it's in making things simple. And for example, uh, the theme of the famous can-can, pam-pam, pam-pam-pam-pam, the same four notes he's using for a lot of other tunes in the same opera. For example, um, John Stick's aria, when I was king, the king of Poland, is this a dun 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 dun, pam pam, pa 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 pa? Or Eurydice's uh, aria in the second act, um, I give no sound and pa da da da. Is you know so it's it's the same four notes, but he gives unity. This is the thing that links to to Mozart's style, just make things simple and organic and united. I have to say also something very funny, that actually the relationship between Rossini and Offenbach was, uh, was very friendly. And as in any friendship, sometimes there is a moment of, there's some bumps, okay? And this happened also in their friendship. So, uh, for example, uh, Offenbach dedicated to Rossini some, some pieces, homage, for example, homage um, uh, a Rossini, it's a fabulous, um, re really beautiful piece for cello and orchestra. And Rossini also admired him, but something happened when um, Offenbach uh, wrote La Belle Hélène. He used uh, uh, the same um, third set that uh, was in the Guglielmo Tell. And, but he made it patriotic and ironic, and Rossini got mad, he got furious. So he replied with a, uh, with a capriche, a la, um, capriche a la Offenbach, which is a piece for piano solo. And he, he made a joke because uh, there was um, a legend, let's say, that about Offenbach that he, um, he would bring bad luck. And, and so he is writing a, a piece for piano where the pianist has to use only the two fingers. 
So it's like pam 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 pam. It's like all like these two it's all with the sign of the horns. So I mean, it was a uh, quite a relationship between the two. And Matthew's already mentioned some of the other Orpheus operas we're having this season, including Gluck's, which of course Offenbach rather naughtily quotes from during this yes. opera. Do you want to? Because people might recognise that tune as we go through this evening. Can you tell us how he uses it? Well, yes, as, as Matthew was mentioning, um, uh, actually in, in, his, uh, in Offenbach's concept, um, Orpheus didn't really want to go to rescue his wife. He was quite happy <laughs> that he, she was you know, in, uh, with Pluto. But uh, he was pushed by public opinion that actually in the original, uh, we are doing a, a slightly different, um, I wouldn't say version, but just we, in our version, public opinion is a baritone. In the in the original is a soprano, of course, you know, women and public opinion. But uh, <laughs> but it was quite sensitive because when when uh, Orpheus goes to uh, in the uh, and, and goes down in the hell to rescue his wife, he appears with the violin and he plays uh, uh, Gluck's Gluck's aria. So it was nice. And actually, in the first performance, it was the the real I mean the um, Orpheus as as well uh, the tenor who was able to play the violin, so he was really playing while he was playing. It's quite difficult to do the two, time, two things at a time. <laughs> and Matthew, you've, you've seen this whole process from sort of first artistic conversations. I think lots of us might have read a Guardian article recently in which Emma Rice said that when she first read the libretto, she was horrified. She thought she couldn't direct this show because it was full of themes and ideas she couldn't bear. Can you talk us through her journey from that moment to the show that we're going to see tonight? Yes, um, I think she was horrified by Eurydice being passed around by all these men who's, who think she, who make her think that she has agency when she doesn't. So um, Orpheus and then Jupiter, then Pluto and then Jupiter, and and I think she was kind of shocked by Eurydice being treated as a sort of pawn, really. Um, and I think maybe she was also sort of slightly shocked by Offenbach's cynical view of human beings, possibly, in which um, Eurydice and Orpheus are sort of seen as petty and, and bickering and we're not supposed to like them. Uh, so she did a Google translate of all the lyrics um, and then began to write a book, uh, which is the, the dialogue, in which she made some very clear and very um, interesting decisions, um, including setting the production in the 50s um, at a time of hope and optimism. Uh, she was very set on public opinion being a black cab driver uh, uh, and also was very set on the idea that w we should sympathize with Orpheus and Eurydice. So at the beginning of the opera, something very tragic happens to them of the production uh, and that really is the context from which you understand the fact that the reason they are fighting is because of something terrible that has happened to them. Um, and really, she wanted to get us into the love story um, and make us believe that they really loved each other. So those are ideas that were generated in the book. And then I came on board September 2018, and um, I started to help Emma sort of make the version that you're going to hear tonight. So collected a lot of the musical numbers together. There are basically two versions of Orpheus in the Underworld. There's the first two-act version, uh, which is actually quite short. And then there's a four-act version that he um, sort of added a lot of music to later, which contains a lot more 
ballet music. And basically, we're using the two-act version with various interpolations from the four-act version, which um, support the story that Emma wants to tell. Um, and we were quite creative with this kind of interpolation. So we have given public opinion an aria at the beginning of Act One, which isn't in either versions. Uh, Where does it come from? It comes from the end of Act One in the four-act version, um, um, in, in a long extended finale that Offenbach added. Um, and we have given Cupid an aria that was originally meant for Mercury in Act Two. We've also changed the structure of Act Two so the gods in Olympus round up on Jupiter much earlier, and we get that they're really unhappy with him. <laughs> we made a third version, yes. Um, and at the end, um, we've also added an aria for Orpheus, where he sings back um, the, the sort of aria that Eurydice sings in Act 1 when she's dying. He sings that back to her when he comes back to hell. So we really get the sense that um, he does want to come and rescue her and that we care for their love story. Um, so... The, when we made the musical version, that kind of came together last December, and then Tom Morris wrote the lyrics, um, which are a kind of free adaptation of the French, and um, which are very, very witty, um, so you're in for a treat there. And Emma then sort of started to work more on the book and edit it, and, and, we have the sh and then we've ended up with the show that we have tonight, which has been edited all through rehearsal, I would say. Lots and changes happening, even when we were on stage. It's been a very exciting process to be part of. And musically, I can imagine as well, you're, Valentina, you're sharing the conducting with Sean Edwards. How far, how early on were you involved in the discussions and the choice of which music would be in, which would be out? Yes, more or, more or less in the same period. Uh, the thing that is really cool is that it's really a third version <laughs> because um, the two versions are really different. I mean, they're the story, the plot is the same, and how it is uh, organized, it's basically the same. But they're really different in the, in the concept, just for having an idea. The two-act version is like two acts and four scenes. And uh, the orchestra that was a major four was roughly 30 people, 30 players. Uh, the four-act version is like four acts, 22 scenes. And then a huge list of solos. It's, I mean, really, really. It's like the score is like it's unbearable. It's really, it's really long, and it is managed is imagined for sixty players in the pit, plus a marching band on stage, plus forty extra players on stage that have to do the processional thing. I mean, it's huge. So it's also also very expensive, and it has a lot of ballet. It has a lot is which dancing is not only dance, it's a huge choreography. And of course it was a, you know, a even bigger um, success, but they're really different in the approach. So I think it's, our version is, is cool. It's more intimate, but it's really cool. And I'm interested to know, as musical directors, how far your interpretation mirrors the production. We've heard that Emma wanted to bring out the emotional side, the true, the heart, underneath all the satirical humour. Yeah. Does your conducting reflect that? It's a very delicate balance always, uh, I think, and also a, a delicate uh, issue. I think opera is, uh, the beauty of opera uh, is that it's, it's complex. Uh, it, it, 
embraces different areas. And each area is independent, but at the same time it's so intimately connected to the others. So you have the, the music, the music approach, and then you have the stage approach, and then you have the choreography that in this kind of opera is huge. So how to put everything together and what are the balances within, you know, sometimes we have different approaches or different visions and then how to put everything together in just one vision. I think this is a very complicated question and issue. But for example, there has been moments also in this, just for having you know, an idea in this production where sometimes uh, music took, um, the first, you know, the first step. Sometimes stage took the the first step. For example, um, there were moments where uh, Emma asked for, for example, here I would like, you know, some extra. I need ten more, ten more seconds. Okay, so then we we can do a repeat. And then, for example, there is a moment where Pluto, uh, that it's actually under, um, it's it's. It's still uh, Aristeus, but let's say Pluto gives pass to Orpheus uh, the box with the snakes. But uh, I'll not tell you anything more. But in this moment, the oboe we ask we added an oboe playing It's something like Oriental and kind of snake. We call it snake music. So there are moments where actually we followed enthusiastically you know, these ideas. Some other times, for example, it was the opposite. For example, I, I remember when uh, we discussed about the minuet, and uh, okay, and there was a question. Okay, can can we do the minuet a bit faster? Because it it feels about like a resting moment. Can we speed up things? And then this was you know from the staging. And then um, Sean replied, you know, it's actually it is meant to be boring. The minuet. So the gods it, it, actually say that, don't they? Oh, how dull, yes, oh, how boring. They, they sing it, minuet is such boring yeah. things. Yeah, because And then it breaks into the can-can, so they kind of have a release after that. Yeah. So um, you see, these things are, you know, embracing one to the other. Of course, we all know Emma best from her work in the theatre. This is her first sort of foray into the opera house. Uh, can you give us a, sort of some idea of her process, how her rehearsal room works, and, and do you think her operetta is different than somebody who might have trained through opera who's a you know a career opera director mm. um well i think everyone's approach is different isn't it i mean i think essentially opera is 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 theater all opera directors are theater directors uh and in a sense emma's approach it's very personal to the way that she directs she actually comes from a devising background originally so um, often she'll start rehearsal without a script at all, and she and she she makes it and devises it with the performers in the room. So that's interesting. Adding that to opera, where there are the structures and the limitations of music. Um, I think one thing that is definitely true about opera is that opera singers turn up on the first day having learnt it. So they they've made a lot of decisions about um, their role before they turn up for rehearsal. Whereas when you're d directing a play. Um, actors learn their lines in the first couple of weeks around, and often that is combined with table work. Um, so opera singers tend to like to get things on their feet straight away, and actually Emma's approach really suited that because essentially she sketched out the whole show in about seven days. Um, so by sort of the middle of week two, we'd kind of got a rough shape on everything, which the opera singers really love, so really suited, and a sort of opera, in inverted commas, process. Um, 
I think things that were definitely unique and probably new to, to, to an opera rehearsal room was Emma's love of play. So we, we, um, we played a lot of games to get us into um, the feeling of being part of a company together. And there was quite a lot of laughter and quite a lot of silliness, which was, which was fun when you're making an operetta. And uh, also, uh, Emma was quite free about staging, so she would often set up her scene and give the performers a set of given circumstances, you know, what had happened just before, what the characters wanted, and then she'd let them play and discover and then rigorously edit and direct after seeing what the performers had given her, which is perhaps a different approach to some more traditional ways of directing opera. Um, yes, I think... The other thing is she works really very closely with a choreographer called Etta Murphett and they've worked together for years and years and, and it was kind of wonderful watching their creative collaboration in the rehearsal room and there's a lot of fun choreography in the show that took quite a long time to get together because um, generally um, opera singers are not the best dancers. <laughs> um, well, I, ha I have to say it's really difficult to sing and move. I mean, not just for remember the moves, just because it's tiring. So it's... It yes. To be. So kind of technically getting everything together has yeah. been a big, musically and, and dance-wise, has been a big challenge, but one that I think everyone has risen to. And Matthew, you yourself direct both theatre and opera. Working with opera singers, are they different in what they can do and what they will do compared to actors? Or is it just a different, a different medium you're working in? I think um, the process is quite similar in that if people, generally actors respond to a set of um, wants, um, character wants and then play them. Opera singers are very similar. I think some opera singers tend to sort of act through their voice and some tend to kind of get to know they're acting through their singing. Does that make sense? Um, so there, there, are, there are differences. There are certainly technical things that you need to take into consideration when you're directing an opera. The position of the singer in relationship to the conductor, um, Opera singers tend to not like to sing upstage, so so, and and opera tends to, on the whole, be a bit more image-based than theatre, which tends towards more, can accommodate more a sort of film naturalism type of acting, I would say. So, um, there are differences, but um, when opera singers can really act, I think it's the the kind of the best, really. <laughs> it's the best art form in that sense because you get both: you get the music and you get the drama. And thinking of this, this perfect fusion of music and drama, Valentina, I've been thinking about operetta, which is still quite unfashionable at the moment. We get lots of Gilbert and Sullivan in the UK, but not a lot of European operetta. Are they similar? Is there, this a very different style to what we expect from, from homegrown writing from this period? Well, um, operetta is very, is a very different uh, style. It's really something uh, on his own. And it's not uh, only because of... Uh, uh, the style. So, of course, there are dialogues. The subject is much lighter. Usually, it's kind of upbeat, and the music is fun, and you go home with a feeling of, oh, okay, it was nice, and I hope to be back next time. But the very, the unique thing, I think, is the is the concept of irony and, and satire. How does it satire? Yeah. Satire. So this is something really witty. But 
irony and satire, it depends from place to place and moment to moment and audience to audience. So, uh, for example, one thing is, is a concept of the irony in during you know, the, the Second Empire in France, in Paris, one thing is the Victorian age, uh, in 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 London, one, another thing is during Lehar or the, the Belle Epoque or Strauss uh, the Younger. So each each approach is different because because the the moment the how it is received it's different. So I think this is part. I think there's a general perception we can be quite snobby about operetta or light opera. Willard, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I wonder, as someone who's worked across sort of, I mean, primarily core operatic repertoire in your, your long career. How do you feel about operetta as a performer? Does it feel different? Is it easier? Easier? Nothing is easy. Um, it all takes a certain level of commitment. And um, if you think it's easy, you might trip up on yourself. Um, I don't find it easy. It's, it's a different approach. Um, this is not really operetta, is it? Is it? I think we're arguing it is, but uh, <laughs> maybe you feel differently. Yeah, but you know, all these categorizations and all these tend to make, create isolations. For me, it's wonderful, dramatic music that I can explore, no matter what it's called. We've been discussing the, the presentation of the gods in this operetta, which is slightly different, perhaps, to the other Orpheus operas this season. Can you, you're playing Jupiter, the king of the gods. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of your character in this particular version? Ah, yes, he knows everything. He doesn't care about anything. Um, and I wonder sometimes, is it typecasting? Uh, my wife told me no. Um, no, this is, it, it was actually quite uh, tricky to approach Mr. Jupiter, but I approached Wotan sometime before, and there is a question, what does a god do? And I, I thought, well, it's a concept, of a man dreaming. And I'm a man, and I can dream, and therefore I can dream or, or feel or pretend what God would do and just do exactly what I would do. And uh, dare I say that I remember one day I, I was walking in Salzburg and um, a lady came up to me and there was this uh, potential um, idea that because of my color, I shouldn't be doing Vota. And this lady came up to me and said, you, you were, you were playing Wotan um, a couple of nights ago, wasn't it? Where's, wasn't it you? I said, yes. Um, she said, you are a true German god. <laughs> and I, said, uh, I said, I'm actually Jamaican. She said, it doesn't matter. Everything you did was just like God. <laughs> so, you know, the, the question of how does he, she behave, uh, is that an answer? It is, but I'm interested to know how a true French god in this version is different to a true German god in your Wotan. Uh, there's no difference. These gods, they can speak whatever language they choose. You laugh. It is true. Why, are they, why have they got that big G in front of it or whatever? Um, yes, it's an interpretation of a situation. And any man, woman can be god in the opera. <laughs> Matthew, I'm wondering if you agree in thinking about the, the sort of the process of creating the, the, the milieu, the world, the family of the gods in this opera with Emma. They look to me on the page like children. What was your starting point for their, for their characters? So um, Olympus is kind of like uh, Hollywood, isn't it, a bit, will it? It's kind of, 
a, a sleazy Hollywood joint, really. Um, and I think, obviously, in our imagination with Jupiter is Harvey Weinstein, perhaps. Uh, uh, perhaps. Um, and and the, the other gods are these kind of movie stars, um, and they're all kind of bored up on Olympus, um, having perhaps having breaks in their careers, perhaps. <laughs> um, and uh, they're all sort of angry at Jupiter for the fact that uh, he's not allowing them to misbehave and he's having all the fun. Um, so they all they want to get a bit on, on the fun as well. Um, and then for the underworld with Pluto and also Bacchus, who we meet in Act 4, um, we're in a really sleazy dive um, and sort of like... Uh, Soho on a on a on a bad night, um, uh, and Pluto r rules over that. Um, so that was kind of our approach with the gods. They're kind of naughty and transgressive, um, and there's also this kind of slightly dark element to them as well, um, where they kind of promise Eurydice something that they can't give her. It's interesting to have that balance of darkness and light in this particular version. Um, comedy is so much at the heart of this piece and the music as well. But Willard, it's, I presume it's a lot easier in a small space to convey comedy, to play with the audience. But how, in a barn like the Colosseum, do you still manage to get that, that energy? Well, I never play comedy. I, I play everything seriously and, and then people find it funny, <laughs> hopefully. Because there's nothing like being serious in a ridiculous situation. It's like, what is he doing? Can you see that? It's crazy. Or something like that. Uh, yeah. Because I, when I was a youngster, I, I used to try to play comedy, and I'd fall flat on my proverbial face. So um, I gave up trying, and um, I discovered I was more funny when I was actually being straight-faced. And Matthew, we've not really talked about the can-can thus far, the sort of the piece that everyone knows from Orpheus in the Underworld. Um, your staging is perhaps a little unexpected, it's a bit darker than normal? Yes, um, it's a bit like a, a sort of bad trip. Eurydice has this nightmare, basically, and, and, and the can-can the is really the, the peak of her journey where we get right inside her psyche and it's a kind of howl of rage and despair. Um, it's 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 like a rave actually in that it's kind of anarchic, but there's this kind of dangerous element to it as well, especially when it's repeated at the end. Um, also, in our version, everybody gets involved, so we have 44 chorus on stage, um, nine um, principals, um, and we have a variety of different can cans going on all at the same time, um, which which creates um, a wonderfully vibrant and and exciting stage picture with Eurydice right at the center of it. Um, what's your experience of the can-can? My experience? Yes. Well, my experience is that some people think that they can't can. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, um, as uh, Matthew points out, everybody throws themselves into it. Even Jupiter at one point um, uh, makes his uh, attempt. And uh, for me, it's... Uh, I find it moving because um, instead of having a bunch of dancers who come on and you know raise their legs uh, higher than everybody else can, it's the it's the folk, the the townspeople, the community who gets in and really enjoys the, the that aspect of life without any importation of um, superior figures. And musically, Valentina, this is the piece everyone knows. You've already shown us how close it is in terms of melody to some of the other arias, but why is it this one that we know and love? 
Well, I think CanCan has become uh, an icon and it's connected, well, so intimately now to uh, Offenbach's music. CanCan is just dun, 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 dun. it's just this music, it's CanCan. And it's, um, it's also, for example, we start imagining the Belle Epoque and the Moulin Rouge and Toulouse-Lautrec paintings, for example. So it's really an icon. And what gives him, gives it the power is the rhythm. It's just obsessive. There's no actually space for shape and agogic. It's just each each note, each each quaver is just so obsessive and and this goes uh, beyond the bars. It just gives you a an excitement and you don't really know where it starts if it's in the toes if it's from it's contagious and you, you just find yourself clapping and moving in your chair when you're watching it it's just i think it's the power of rhythm and for Offenbach for example just because he uses many times uh, the same elements rhythm it's it is exactly what creates a character because for example before i was mentioning you know the um John Stee's tan 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 tan. It's you know, so you you rely on the first note, pam 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 pa. So it's kind of I actually loved the life I was doing. So he stays on the first note and he says three times like, wait, like don't don't go, life, just stay with pam 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 pa. It's the character of kind of melancholic, but when for example it's Eurydice, it gives you know more breath. And then the can-can is just, I don't know, it's just... Vibrant. More than vibrant. Orgiastic, you might say. Orgiastic, yes, it is. So it's rhythm. I'm not sure we're safe to discuss that much longer. We're very, we're very tight for time. So just to finish up, I wondered each of you, perhaps starting with Valentina, which is, is there a moment each night when you do the show that you look forward to? This is the bit, whether it's staging, whether it's music, that you think, yeah, I'm Oh my God, absolutely. To it's his duet. It's his duet with Eurydice. It's just so fantastic. Can I say something? I mean, can I spoil something? Uh, you can't Just spoil, spoil small. Um, it's the moment where Jobs transforms himself into, into a fly. Who? So it's so... Who does that? Oh, I think it's you. Oh, <laughs> Jobs, yeah. You'll see him. You'll see him as a fly and uh, singing this love duet with Eurydice that, you know, in, in opera, you know, the, the duet between the the king of the goats and Eurydice should be, you know, the apotheosis of, and, and here they're like buzzing to each other. And at first, it's, it's so fun. It's so, so fun and so ironic, I think. Yeah. Quite naughty. Naughty. <laughs> Matthew, what about you? I just love the end of act two, where um, everyone's singing about going down to hell and Jupiter's giving everyone permission. And the choreography is just so much fun. And it looks like everyone's having such a good time on stage and it's a brilliant brilliant bit of music isn't it i think it's just Absolutely. so so brilliantly written and finally willard well um it's it's like the the first entrance that i have i think is really quite crazy um <laughs> <laughs> and the costume is outrageous yes um, it is uh, and um and i have a lot of fun with it even though i was told by someone that it didn't seem as if you were enjoying yourself so much i said well um i was <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you could all join me in thanking our brilliant panellists. <laughs>